The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Each business is unique and operated individually of others in the same industry. What they have in common is the potential path to success. Welcome to The Second Stage with your hosts, Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. In today's program, we'll address the obstacles that many businesses find on that path to success and discuss what entrepreneurs and their businesses are doing to stay ahead of the curve. Now, here is Brendan Anderson and Jeffrey Cadlick. Welcome, everybody, to the second stage. Jeff, we, uh, we've, uh, I always feel like we haven't been, done this in a while, and then I kind of realized we kind of did it last week. But nevertheless, it's, uh, it's good, to, good to be back on the airwaves. Hey, uh, uh, we've got our producer in the, in the background here uh, chiming in on the show. Uh, yeah, Brendan, I have to say, you know, uh, the show always goes better when uh, both of us are on the call at the same time. But uh, I feel like I've left you hanging here uh, a few of the last Mondays, and I want to apologize publicly for, for doing that to you. I apologize. Well, publicly, as far as our show goes, it'll be public once the people download it and listen to it. But the, no, <laughs> no, it's a. Uh, but it's, it's on there forever. It's like it's memorialized true. now. It's true. I, honestly, that might. I'm be sure awesome. you're going to rip that section of yep. the show and just replay it constantly. Yeah. Exactly. We're going to have that. Uh, we're going to have, absolutely, absolutely. Well, Jeff, what have you been up to? It's been a little while. We uh, it's it's kind of spring in Cleveland, right? We got uh, we got sun, kind of quasi sunshine. We we had sun. You know, it's uh, this is this is kind of this is as good as it gets. The Browns still have yet to draft anybody. We're this is as good as it gets in Cleveland. Uh, well, you know, the fact that the Browns traded away the second slot to get more draft picks, I think, is the first sign of a smart move of like the 10th administration they've had in the last uh, 15 years yep, that's because good. they have so many holes and they didn't go for the shiny object like they did with uh, Manziel who was recently indicted on a misdemeanor uh, for beating up his girlfriend I think so uh, that was another another pick <laughs> Another pick down down the drain uh, for the brownies but uh, onward and upward uh, and speaking of onward and upward, we have our guest today, uh, Tema Frank. She's a best-selling author, international speaker, and consultant. Tema has over three decades experience in business and marketing strategy, usability testing, and customer experience improvement. You can follow her on Twitter, at Tema Frank, that's T-E-M-A Frank, and her website is www.frankonlinemarketing.com. And uh, Brendan, if I recall, you uh, have already talked to Tema or, or had uh, some exchange about her new book, People Shock, The Path to Profits When Customers Rule. And so we'll spend a little time talking about that today. And I'm not sure we may have uh, Tema on hold or uh, ready to join us on this call. Tema, are you, are you online? Whoop. Yes, I'm here. Do you hear me? I do. How are you? Okay. I'm great. This- How are you? Good. This is Jeff Cadlick, and I've got my tag team partner, uh, Brendan Anderson, online as well. Tell me, great to, great to talk to you. No, and to you too. So, so I, 
Oh, please, go ahead, Jeff. Brandon. No, 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 I no, demand please. you go. I demand. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm not going to. Okay. I'm looking for Tim, I, 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 what, I, what we love about the show is obviously there's you know mostly entrepreneurs listening in and people that love entrepreneurship and you know obviously kind of reading up a little on your background you uh, you're you're an entrepreneur also maybe kind of share some of your entrepreneurial uh, background with us. Absolutely, I've uh, actually been an entrepreneur I guess uh, since 1991 when I got laid off by a bank and I was about to get married and I had a choice of either following my husband, who was a professor, on a sabbatical to Europe or doing another career job, and Europe won. (laughs) So, um, Yeah, that's what I figured. So after, while I was there, I started a book on Canada's Best Employers for Women and discovered that they are, in fact, among the best for men, too, even though the reverse was not always true. And then uh, several years later, became more and more intrigued by the Internet and the potential of the Internet and more and more frustrated by the fact that marketers and the IT folks weren't talking to each other. So I founded what I think of as my first real business, which was Web Mystery Shoppers, in 2001. So it was still very early days, but... uh, My goal with that was to bring some objective evidence to both the marketing people and the IT people about what real customers were actually experiencing on the websites and also related to the websites if they called in or went into a store or branch and find out are they being consistent across channels, which um, is really has been my interest ever since that time. And I've now written the book People Shock where I look specifically at that. How do you deliver an outstanding customer experience no matter where and when a customer wants to deal with you? When, when you, uh, I, like, let me go all the way back. When, when you were, uh, was it you were in France that you decided to yeah. write the first book about uh, best employers for women? Um, actually, I was in the Netherlands that year, oh, although okay. I have also spent sabbaticals in France. So, yeah. so What made you think of doing that? Because I, I just like the background stuff is always fun for me. Sure. I actually attended a conference in London on Euro business women and met a woman who had just written that book there for British women. And I just thought, what a cool idea. And uh, as soon as I got back to Canada, I started work on that one. I, I mean, I started planning it before we got back. And, you know, also, I'll be honest, uh, when I came back to the country, I was pregnant, figured, eh, no one's likely to hire me anyway. I might as well write the book. <laughs> All right, so now, so then, how did you come up with the idea of the the kind of monitoring what how the people's uh, per, or, uh, kind of satisfaction online? Because that just seems to be that's way over Jeff's in my head. So we wouldn't even know how you would do that. So, but maybe, but how did that come to how did that come to your mind? We're all learning here. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay, that's great. Um, really, the idea, um, I guess, just came out of my own frustration. Uh, I, I like to tell the story that. I was at home with no car in the middle of a snowstorm. I had two babies and a husband who was out of town. And I thought, it ought to be easy to buy diapers online. And it really wasn't. And so that's what got me interested in looking at what can I do to make it easier for people to buy things online. And I realized that what was happening is In those days, a lot of companies had set up websites, but they hadn't really thought through how do we make them usable to people. They were just proud of themselves for having a website, any website up. 
And so I had always been interested in public opinion. I guess my first real career was as a lobbyist, so I was well aware of the role of of customers and customer opinion. And I wanted to figure out some way that I could help feed that feedback to the people who were designing the websites in the hopes that they would make them easier to use. So I'm good. So, so like when you do that, is it is it literally? I mean, is it that you have people that are pretty experienced about this, and they get on and try to buy something, and then they kind of report back, or, yep. or is that too simplified? No, that's exactly what it was. So cool. they would get on, they would try and buy something, and then as they were using the site, every step of the way, every page they visited, they'd say, "Okay, this is what I'm looking for next," and then when they get there, they'd say, "Well, this is what I thought I'd find. This is what I actually found." And they'd also say, you know what, I am so frustrated at this point. If you weren't paying me to do this test, I'd be out of here by now. So it gave, and I'd get anywhere from 30 to a couple hundred people to test each website. So it gave the owners of those websites a lot of data about what was frustrating people and where they were hitting barriers. That's great, and I, I suspect that 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 so maybe uh, then then your uh, the new book uh, uh, People Shock is that tell me how that came to pass and was there is there a, a kind of a direct correlation with what you learned in the in the first business? Well, it's definitely related, and it, in a way, People Shock pulls together all these different aspects of my background because um, it's got that whole usability part for sure. But it also brings to bear some of what I learned in writing about best employers because in order to deliver outstanding customer experiences, you have to be making sure that you're treating employees right too because unhappy employees are not going to create happy customers. So what I did with PeopleShock is I started thinking, okay, how can organizations look at this in a way that will help them think through all the implications of improving their customer service? And what I came up with is what I call the 3P profit formula. So that's promise plus people plus process. So the promise is what is it that we as an organization are trying to accomplish? Why are we doing it? Essentially, what's our brand? What is it we're promising our customers? And hopefully that promise is clear enough and inspirational enough in some way that it will help inspire your staff as well and that it will also provide some guidelines and values people can use to make decisions. So that's the first element, the promise. The second part, the people, refers both to the people inside your organization, which is to say your staff, but also a whole range of people outside your organization. So obviously customers and prospects, but also people like your suppliers, your distributors. Your relationships with those people also makes a huge difference because if those people aren't happy, again, they're going to do things that will make it harder for you to deliver consistently great customer experience. So that's the people part. And then the third part is where often companies, especially smaller ones, I find, will fall down. And that is, well, actually, I shouldn't say especially smaller ones, big ones too. They fall down on the process side. So it's all fine and dandy to say, yeah, we want to have really satisfied, happy customers. But if you don't look back inside your organization and see what your processes are, you're not likely to be able to deliver on that because often they're internal processes that seem to make sense to us on the inside, but it really makes for bureaucratic headaches for your customers. So you want to re-examine your processes, but from a customer perspective and streamline them. And, and the exciting thing about this is that by doing that, you'll often find that you can actually save money 
because your processes will become more efficient and at the same time have happier customers who are buying more and referring you more to their friends or colleagues. I think the thing that um, I, I liked the most when I was kind of uh, looking at the your three P's, the, the, the promise, people, and process, was that it also drives more profit. So I'd call it, you know, the big yeah. P. And although, uh, you know, keeping, you know, it, you know, we at Evolution kind of say, you know, making money and a, you know, and a decent return on your investment is a, is a table stake. It's something you have to do to stay in business and keep reinvesting in your people and so forth. And you know, we we I'll probably say this too much, but you know, when you when you do get that purpose and you find the right people and you can kind of put it in a in a process, it it it, it you know you tend to outperform the market and create lots of opportunities for lots of different people. So it's uh it's pretty exciting. Well, I Jeff, I, I suspect we should probably run to our our first break. I don't know if you want to say anything on the on the way out. Uh, of course, I do, Brendan. Uh, <laughs> I do. You can. <laughs> I do. Uh, you can follow uh, this show as well as all our prior shows on Voice America Business channel, which is voiceamerica.com. You can also uh, find us on iTunes, search podcast for the second stage. We, of course, want to thank all of our iTunes listeners and uh, want to thank our guest today, uh, who will be back for the next segment, but Tema Frank, the best-selling author, international speaker, and consultant. Tema has over three decades experience in business and marketing strategy, usability testing, and customer experience improvement. You can follow Tema at Tema Frank uh, and also Go to her website, www.frankonlinemarketing.com. And then before we cut away, I would also like to thank our sponsor, uh, RSM. They're the leading provider of assurance, tax, and consulting services focused on small and mid-sized businesses nationwide with more than 6,700 people in 75 U.S. cities. Thanks for tuning in to the second stage. And when we come back, we'll be here with our guest, Tema Frank. what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. This is Davis Love III, Ryder Cup captain and Team McGladry member. McGladry is about building relationships. That's the kind of team I want to be a part of, a team that builds deep understanding of each client's vision and unique way of doing business. The same attributes I look for and the partners I choose. It's this understanding that enables you and me to make confident decisions. When you trust the advice you're getting, you know your next move is the right move. This is the power of being understood. This is McGladry. Assurance. Tax. Consulting. Many industries have been revolutionized by technology in the last decade. Books, music, TV, communications, and now it's happening to our money and the way we pay. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how technology and customer behavior will bring about more changes in banking in the next 10 years than in the last 200 years. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on Voice America Business Channel or on AM 1160 The Voice. You'll never look at your bank account the same again. If you want to learn how to be a better leader, increase your level of business performance, and motivate your team and organization more effectively, listen for Performing at Your Best, Mindset Evolution with Luis Vicente Garcia. Luis Vicente and his guests will share their expertise and enthusiasm in helping you to succeed. It's combining that drive with business skills that will do just that. Tune in live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 
from the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to The Second Stage. To reach the hosts or their guests today, call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to thesecondstage at evolutioncp.com. Now, back to Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. Welcome to the show, The Second Stage. This is Jeff Cadlick, and I'm here with my partner, Brendan Anderson, and also our guest, Tema Frank. Uh, you can follow uh, this show uh, at the uh, hashtag The Second Stage. That's t- the 2ND stage. You can also email us at the second stage at evolutioncp.com. I want to remind everybody that each week we want to provide actual advice and have you continue the dialogue through comments and questions on our blog, which is uh, on evolutioncp.com. Uh, we are with our guest, Tema Frank, uh, best-selling author, international speaker, and consultant. Uh, we spent the first part of the segment talking about our new book, People Shock, uh, and uh, you can learn more about that book on www.frankonlinemarketing.com. Uh, so, Tema, um, you know, most businesses want happy customers, but overall customer experience ratings are dropping. Why is that? I blame it on what I call the Amazon effect. So, basically, Amazon has set an incredibly high standard that is really difficult to meet. So, these days, um, it's very difficult to try and match, let alone beat them on price or on selection or speed of delivery. And uh, and even customer service, should there be a problem, these they've really made that their expertise. And what's happened is people are increasingly using that as their standard, even when it comes to purchases in the business-to-business world. They still expect that same level of customer service. And it's getting harder and harder for companies to compete at that level. So I think even though... In some ways and in some areas, customer service may actually be improving. Customers' perceptions of it are going down. All right, Tim. Jeff and I live in Cleveland, Ohio, so uh, we we get to fly United a lot, United Airlines. <laughs> and and yeah. and honestly, you know, I you know, I feel like Jeff and I fly so much that they should they should kind of care that we are there, but I, I just never ever ever feel like. They do care. So, what, what, you know, if you were going to advise my good friends at United or somebody similar to them, how, and how could they improve their customer experience? Ooh, there are so many ways. And it's funny <laughs> that you mentioned United because you've probably uh, heard of the video United Breaks Guitars. That's the, it's the funniest video. Yeah, it is awesome. great. And uh, actually, I, I interviewed Dave Carroll on my podcast, uh, Frank Reactions, as well. So really... To start with, you've got to care about your customers. And one of the problems is... Oh, we're, we're screwed, Jeff. We got yeah, right. we're in middle, exactly. middle back, baby. When, middle back. We're good to go. All right. I'm sorry. When a, yeah. when a company becomes that big and that dominant in a local market, I mean, as you say, you end up having to fly on them because you don't have a lot of choice. So sometimes they can get away with really lousy service because they don't have a lot of competition. Now, they are vulnerable if somebody finds a way to disrupt that market. So here in Canada, for instance, for years, it was all about Air Canada. And then WestJet started up. And WestJet, they actually smile at you. They actually care. 
And it just, it's amazing how something as simple as having staff who smile can make people feel so much better. It's not that hard to at least start moving some way towards making customers feel better. But from what I can hear, from what I've heard about uh, United, is they've got a lot of disgruntled staff too. So unless they start turning that around, they're going to have a hard time getting staff to treat their customers well. So they've got a really big challenge on their hands. Yeah, it's also interesting too. Sometimes you call and you get a, a nice person on the phone at United because there are some nice people out there. Um, <laughs> and but then they 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 have to give you such horrible news that it's like mm-hmm. it would be just a terrible because it's like they set them up for failure too. It's like you know, yeah, I realize you fly here a lot, whatever, but there's really nothing I can do for you other than charge you two hundred fifty bucks. You're like, oh, okay, that's cool. All right, so the, what yeah. the number one mistake that the companies make uh, in the customer experience? What would that be? I I would say the number one mistake is simply not listening not listening to what is really affecting their customers, what their customers really want. Um, they make assumptions about customers all the time, and they tend to assume that everything's fine until they hear otherwise. But often by the time they hear otherwise, that customer's out the door, and you've already lost them. So I think the biggest mistake companies make is that just don't put in the effort to find out what are customers really thinking and how could we really serve them better. Do you think that that comes from the top, or does, or is that a, does it always come from the top? It doesn't always come from the top, although I've got to say changing it internally, it really helps if that comes from the top. Because often to improve things, especially to improve those processes from a customer perspective, you have to cross silos. So, And this becomes even more of an issue when you're talking bigger organizations. But even in smaller organizations, you need somebody at the top who says, you know what, this really is important, and we have to change things so that the customer becomes our focus, and we look at everything from what's best for the customer's perspective. Um, we, but we sure internally, feel that way. Often, go ahead. Sorry? No, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying, internally, I mean, there can be people at any and every level who put blockages in the way. Sometimes they feel threatened. Yeah, and, and and you know I agree. I just we we you know we we tend to work with very small companies, and it's uh, it tends to be you know kind of a a culture that the that the leading people set. But it's uh, you know it's interesting you know some you know a humongous company how you would slowly but surely change that. But it does happen. You know uh, Southwest Airlines they still largely you know kind of smile and so forth. So I guess I'm mm-hmm. stuck on airlines today. It, you know, shifting. You see, you're uh, you you got into the digital world long before Jeff and I uh, knew how to turn on a computer. At least I didn't. <laughs> Jeff did. But um, you know, what's interesting to us is how every one of our our partner companies has, um, you know, the the digital, you know, kind of on, you know the online presence, the digital, you know, kind of. Uh, uh, advertisement, if you will, it really has become almost the driving force in a lot of the businesses, and in no different than evolution here. Literally, uh, you know, we we feel like we've got a pretty unique product, a pretty unique niche, and most of the people find us through the internet. So, or or at least some sort of online content. Can you talk maybe about the essential ingredients to uh, to having a you know in the digital era to profitability? Well, you know, and it's funny because there are a lot of basic things that sometimes small companies miss. So, for instance, you want to make sure that on your website you've got contact information front and center. 
and that you provide a lot of alternatives. So I always tell companies, especially if they're selling anything that's a little bit complex, make sure that you've got your toll-free phone number prominent on every page for people who want to just pick up the phone and talk to you. But also provide them with other, other ways to contact you and not just a form. Give them an email address because sometimes people don't want to spend time filling out your form. Uh, another mistake companies make is they have these forms that are ridiculously long. I don't want to give them a ton of information about me if I just want to ask a quick question. So another thing is make sure that your website, right from the very first page, makes it clear. And I know this sounds obvious, but it isn't always on a lot of websites. What do you sell? And how are you different from your competition? What's your unique selling proposition? Why should I deal with you instead of somebody else? I mean, I know that sounds obvious, but again, that's often really missing on a lot of websites. And then one thing that a lot of people just hate the thought of putting on their website is pricing information. And, you know, sometimes it's hard. Let's say you do web design services or something, and there can be a huge range in that depending on how complex the website is. But if you know that you're never going to design a website that's only a thousand bucks, you're better off letting people who visit your site know that right away. So they're not wasting your time or theirs. So you can give a range. You can say, you know, depending on the complexity, it's going to cost anywhere from five to fifty thousand dollars. I mean, it's a huge range. But then you can talk about here are some of the factors that affect the cost. So educate your customers and screen out the ones who aren't relevant. Don't be afraid of putting some pricing info on there. It's funny you say that. We we were challenged by um, um, Bo Burlingham, who's a you know wonderful author of you know kind of passionate small business uh, author, former uh, longtime editor of Inc. Magazine, you know to to come up with a product, a product, a kind of a private equity product that we could kind of disclose to everybody, and that's been a big you know kind of shift in mentality. And we actually you know try to disclose that you know for, for private equity, you think that's really really hard, but it's uh, it's something that we've had a lot of fun with, and that's a that's a that's. And I think you're right. Most people, and I got to tell you too, it's you know we, we're blessed. We get to look at a lot of fun businesses and meet some wonderful people. And there's so often anymore that I get on the, I, I go look at their website before I talk to them, and I, and I, you know, I'll concede that uh, the, you know I'm a little slow, but I, I have no idea. You know, they try to make it sound so fancy that you have no idea what they really do. I mean, it's uh, you know, it's like we have a we have a partner company that we always kind of say, guys, just you know, just could you just get it so that a normal person can understand what you're talking about? But it's. <laughs> Yep, and they're, they're still working on it. Yeah, well, I remember actually in, in my early career, I worked for a bank and we had a, a campaign, a deposit campaign. And it was funny. I mean, it's hilarious. People will deposit huge amounts of money to get stuffed animals. So they get to collect <laughs> these stuffed animals. We called it the zoo crew. But they had to keep their money in the account for at least 90 days. And the first year we ran the campaign, of course, the lawyers got their hands on things so you know, one side of the flyer was all the basics and showing the pretty animals. The other side was a full page of legalese. And we had a lot of complaints from people who didn't realize that they had to keep their money for 90 days. The second year, I managed to win a battle and say, you know what, we are writing plain English rules. It's going to be in big typeface. It's going to say really clearly, here's the deal. And, yeah, there's a risk that somebody's going to find a little wrinkle and find a way around. 
But as my boss at the time said to me, 98% of the people are honest. So design for them, not for the other 2%, because the other 2% will always find a way around no matter what. The second year, it was an even more successful campaign, and we had no complaints, none, because they knew, they understood. That's interesting. It's... uh. Especially in banks, <laughs> they like they like their legalese. <laughs> oh, for sure. Insurance companies are even worse. It still drives me crazy how difficult it is to figure out what you've bought when you buy insurance. I think you know transparency goes a long way, and um, and uh, you know it's just it, the more transparent, the more unique you become, and the more it is for people to you know the people that that you're going to you know kind of share values with. It makes it much easier for for them to find you. So it's a uh, you know, it's uh, it, it makes sense, but it's uh, it's amazing how often when you when we talk to entrepreneurs, they just they're so sure that, that everybody's going to steal their idea or steal their concept or steal their whatever. So it's like they're just afraid. You know, they keep it they keep it so close. But uh, anyways, it's nuts. It um, really just comes down to execution. It comes it down to execution. And, and again, I think that's part of the reason why the human element becomes so important. Because these days, no matter what your product is. Somebody, if it's a good product, somebody's going to copy it really quickly. Uh, it's not going to take long before somebody finds it and finds a manufacturer in China who can make it and make it for cheaper. And so the way for you to have long-term success is for you to be supplementing that product with really strong human relationships. And that's a lot of what the book is about. So, Tim, apart from employees and customers, what other types of people matter to business success? Well, it's interesting because we do tend, I've mentioned a couple of them already. So, your suppliers. If you have a good relationship with your suppliers, they will, for instance, they may come up with ideas on new products. They know about new technology that might allow you to offer new products that might make sense. Or they'll make sure you're their priority. If they're running behind on something, you'll be the one that they favor. So that would apply to suppliers. Distributors and resellers or franchisees, of course, they're your public face. So you want to make sure you've got good relationships with them. It shouldn't be an adversarial relationship. In addition, there's lenders. And I mean, entrepreneurs hear this all the time, that you don't want to try and hide a lot of stuff from your banker, as frustrating as dealing with bankers can be. Because if you have good relationships there, they'll try to help you (laughs) instead of trying to shut you down. And also, though, in this era, because of social media, there's a whole range of other people out there who influence how people perceive your organization. And so you've got to start paying attention a little bit to what is the public conversation about companies in our line of work. And so even if you're small enough that you're not on the public radar yet and nobody's mentioning you, you want to know what's the general conversation like and what are people looking for in a supplier. So if you learn a little bit about how to use social media effectively, even just starting with searching more carefully, going not just to the standard platforms but to things like forums and blogs, you can start finding out more about what motivates the people who would want to buy from you. And, of course, you do want to be monitoring social media in some ways because somebody might be bad-mouthing you and you want to find out about it. And these days, often, when people are upset with the company, they start bad-mouthing them very publicly online. (laughs) 
Yes, they do. Uh, we are here with our guest, Tema Frank, best-selling author of the book People Shock, international speaker and consultant. Uh, you can follow her on Twitter, at Tema Frank, and also go to her website, which is uh, very thorough. Lot, lots to look at online here, uh, www.frankonlinemarketing.com. And when we come back in the next segment, uh, Tema is going to answer us answer the question, what are the early, sign, early warning signs that we might have a customer experience problem brewing? Thanks for tuning in to the second stage. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. This is Davis Love III, Ryder Cup captain and Team McGladry member. McGladry is about building relationships. That's the kind of team I want to be a part of. A team that builds deep understanding of each client's vision and unique way of doing business. The same attributes I look for and the partners I choose. It's this understanding that enables you and me to make confident decisions. When you trust the advice you're getting, you know your next move is the right move. This is the power of being understood. This is McGladry. Assurance Tax Consulting. If you are a small business owner or entrepreneur, you may not be aware of the different options available to you in securing business capital in today's market. We discuss and explore these options each week on Small Business Capital America with host Michael Schumacher. There are two primary ways of building business capital. Profits, which are basically higher revenue and reduced expenses, and external or debt capital. Listen live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business. It's time to take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, get hired into the career you want, and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to The Second Stage. To reach the hosts or their guests today, call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to thesecondstage at evolutioncp.com. Now, back to Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. Welcome back to the show, The Second Stage. This is Jeff Cadlick, and I've got my partner, Brendan Anderson, also our guest, Tema Frank. Uh, during the break, uh, Tema informed us that uh, you can go to uh, the website for her latest book, People Shock, by going to peopleshock.com. And when you're there, you can uh, get the intro in chapter one for free. 
uh, to decide if you uh, want to get the book. And of course, uh, you know, we, we've we actually got an advanced copy of the book, and it's it's very very good. So we would certainly encourage you to to do that. Peopleshock.com. Uh, we want to hear from everybody in the second stage community in terms of what works and what doesn't work. We want to create a true community of entrepreneurs helping entrepreneurs. So email us at the second stage at evolutioncp.com if you'd like to volunteer the, to the community, your experiences and solutions. And you can also connect with us on Twitter at evolution underscore CP. Uh, so I tempted our audience uh, before the last break with the question of what are the early warning signs that we might have a customer experience problem brewing? And so, Tim, I'm going to put it to you. Uh, what is the answer to that question? Well, the answer is, and it's funny, there are early warning signs in a whole bunch of different areas within your business. So to start with, there's the really obvious stuff. I mean, if there's an increase in the number of customer complaints, or you're getting more returns or requests for refunds, obviously you've got a problem. If sales have flatlined or decreased or the length of the sales cycle is increasing also, you've, you've pretty obviously got a problem. But then there are things that get a little bit more subtle. So, for instance, from an operations perspective, if the number of product defects is increasing, chances are that will end up spilling into a customer experience problem. Or likewise, if production's often delayed by equipment that needs repairs or by missing parts, all of those things will cause supply problems that will end up upsetting customers. From a finance department perspective, if you're behind on sending out invoices or if nobody's tracking and following up on unpaid bills, it's generally an indication that there are some process problems, and process problems will lead to customer problems. From a human resources perspective, if it's getting harder and harder for you to recruit and keep good workers, that's also probably an indication that there's unhappiness in your staff. And if you, as I've said before, if you've got unhappy staff, you're not going to be providing great customer experience. And even if it's not a challenge of recruiting or retaining them, even if you see that absenteeism or sick leave are increasing, that's usually an indicator as well of a staff morale problem that can spill over to customers. And then I I like to sort of round it out with one more area, which is from a leadership perspective, if the CEO and the other senior executives, if there's a lot of either disagreement or if there's absolutely no disagreement, either of those probably indicates there's a problem. So if there's a lot of disagreement and it's and it's a hostile situation, then that's not a good thing. You're obviously not, you don't have a consistent promise. You're not seeing things the same way, don't have the same values and goals. But if there's no disagreement, that generally means that the rest of them are afraid to open up in front of the CEO. And if that's the case, there is a serious problem. And all of these types of problems will ultimately spill out into customer problems. Hey Tim, let's say that we, you know, we did have a customer problem. It got, you know, kind of got ahead of us, and then, you know, people are starting to say some negative things online. What do we, what do we do about that? That could be pretty nasty. Oh, they certainly can. Um, to start with, ideally, you will have already got yourself a bit of a presence online, and you've started forming some connections with people online. 
So the proactive approach is the best. If you can start getting out there a bit, building relationships online, showing that you're helpful, that you're part of a community, then if people start bad-mouthing you online, that community will come to your defense. Often you don't even need to do anything. One thing you do not want to do is try and just take down their content because if you do that, that's going to make them all the angrier and it'll multiply. What you can do, though, even if you haven't already been online, when you see a complaint online, is you want to reach out to that person who complained and, and reach out to them in whatever platform they complained on and say, you know, look, we're, we're really sorry to hear that you've had a problem. We'd like to try and make this right. Can we talk about this with you offline because it'll get a bit complicated online and let's see what we can do. If you do that, you're signaling to the whole broader community that you're taking it seriously and you're encouraging this person to stop blasting you publicly. Finally, if they just insist on continuing to blast you publicly, just ignore them because what will happen is everyone else will too. If, if people see that you've tried to be rational and helpful and that this person just wants to keep on going, they'll start ignoring them. All right. So, so now, and I think that's really good. I think that concept of reaching out is always, you know, is always good. If, you know, if you're sincere, you know, I think the, the yeah. people out there can tell whether you're sincere or not. And please be sincere. Um, so let's say, let's say we lost some customers because of that. And uh, is, it, is it possible to get them back? Absolutely. And the interesting thing is often the customers who complain are the ones who care. And they were your customers because at some point, Either you delivered something to them that they found valuable or they hoped you would deliver something they found valuable. So there is a connection there. They really want you to succeed. They don't want you to fail. They don't want you to make their lives miserable. So the first thing that you really want to do with former customers, if you have contact information for them, is reach out to them and say, you know what, we realize that in the past we really messed up. And either we've got new leadership now or we've re-examined things and we really want to turn this around. Can't, would you talk to us and give us your advice? By doing that, you're taking these people who were upset with you and saying, hey, we value you and we value your expertise and your insight. You will get great feedback from most of them. Uh, there are very few people at that point, unless you really, really, really upset them, very few people will say, no, get lost. Some will. Some say, no, I'm not interested. But the vast majority will actually be thrilled that you reached out and that you're trying and that you want to hear their advice. So do that. Reach out to them. No, and we, that's because I'm sitting here thinking there's some other people I should reach out to. Um, but, <laughs> but uh, no, that's, uh, and, and it really is communication. And, and, you know, and again, I just think I picture companies that reach out to me and they're sincere about it. And, you know, you, you just feel like you should give them another chance. And the ones that, you know, that don't reach out or are not sincere, it's, uh, you know, makes that life pretty easy. You know, throw United back in that category. Um, <laughs> so. But we still fly them. I think Jeff and I are flying them tomorrow, too. Because, well, um, again, you don't have much choice, right? It's true. It's true. All right. So, so you know, a lot of times changing customer service and, and, and being focused on the customer is, is difficult. Let's say you work with some people and, and you're trying, you know, how do you, how do you convince the people uh, that you're working with that, you know, that you may need to change some things to make the customer service better? And that can definitely be difficult. So to start with, ideally, you want to have support right from the top. So if you are at the top, you want to send a clear signal that this is important and that it is a direction that you will be pursuing and that you expect them to pursue 
Um, but beyond that, let's say you're not the CEO, what you really want to do is kind of like, as I've been saying, with the customers, you want to think from a customer perspective. Well, with colleagues, you want to think from their perspective. So what are they trying to accomplish? What are their goals? What are the things that frustrate them? And how are there ways that you can actually help them achieve their goals? And sometimes you'll find that there's actually some overlap between what they need to do their job better will actually, by doing that, ultimately make the customer situation better. So, for instance, one of the examples I gave there of, you know, a hint that there's a customer problem brewing is, let's say there are a lot of problems with equipment needing repairs or missing parts on the production line. Well, if you can then say, okay, look, clearly this is a problem, we can support that with some research from customers that shows clearly that we're losing business because of products being late or deliveries being late, you can go to bat with them, that's going to make them much more inclined to support you in your goals as well as you supporting them in their goals. So it helps the whole organization. Um, you know what we love about, you know, when you, when you find a business with a passion or a purpose or a mission and, you, and you're able to spread that, you know, across the organization, you're, you know, you're going to save the world, you're going to, you know, you're going to clean all the water and so forth. What, what, you know, but then there's all the businesses where, where they're just a little more mundane. You know, we, in my first business I own, we, we bent large diameter tubing. How do you, how do you inspire people with a mission when, when the mission doesn't seem so obvious or, pers- or purpose? Well, that's a really great question, and it isn't always obvious. So one of the examples that I like to give, there's a company called Jancoa Janitorial Services. And now, as the owner of the company said to me, nobody grows up wanting to be a janitor, right? This is not one's life's ambition in most cases. And so, you know, the service originally that they were providing was pretty mediocre. They they were in an industry with huge staff turnover, um, which in itself causes further problems. And what they finally realized was that their staff came from such disadvantaged backgrounds that... These people didn't even dream about a better life. They had nothing to look forward to. And so the owners of that company decided that their mission became helping these people have and achieve dreams. And they set up what they called the Dream Manager Program. And so they started working one-on-one with their staff to say, what would you love to accomplish? Like, what, what would be really meaningful to you? Whether it's getting at buying, being able someday to buy a house or a car. And let's work with you to help you accomplish that. And what they found is that in the process, ironically, so what they're doing is they became very inspired about what they were doing and staff became inspired, of course, because you're helping them achieve their goals. And with happy staff and inspired staff, the staff were working a lot harder. Absenteeism went down. So the mission in that case became an internal one, really, rather than an external one. But it it helped provide better customer service. And ironically, they were trying to help people someday move on from being a janitor, but it actually lowered their turnover rates to well below industry averages. Because while people were there... They were really committed, and they stayed there for a longer period of time. So sometimes it it is more challenging, and sometimes your staff may be the place. But there are other times where you can find something external. So you're bending metal tubing. Well, 
what are the products that that's ultimately creating? And what is the value to society of those products? So I interviewed a, a company, they make windows. And they, a few, couple of times a year, will do a build for Habitat for Humanity. So they're building a house for people who couldn't otherwise have one. Now, the, the factory workers didn't usually get to participate in those builds, but what they would do is they would actually video this family talking about the house and what it meant to them, and they'd have pictures, and they would put those up by the production line, and they found that it really, really motivated staff because it made them see that, you know what, we're not just making windows. We're helping a family have a home. You know, it's, it's wild. I, I don't know if you, you're familiar with Jack Stack down in uh, Springfield, Missouri, SRC Industries. And, you know, it, it's like, you know, the, he started with, I think, 13 or 14 employees. He has 2,500 employees now. And his main focus is teaching people financial statements. And you think that he's like, God, how can you find a purpose built, you know, teaching people financial statements? But it's not just the financial statements of the company. It's also how to work your own personal life and your own checkbooks and your own things. And it's you know and it's and it's amazing. I mean, you know, I think uh, with twenty five hundred employees, you still invest like an hour a day. I'm sorry, an hour a week in everybody. So um, it's it's you know, but but you know, it's also you know, it's obvious his his performance has been unbelievable. And hey, let's talk quickly um, or about what's design thinking and and what is it and how could it help my, our businesses. So design thinking really means starting when you're developing products or services, starting with the end customer in mind. So instead of saying, well, I think there's a need for such and such and I'm going to build it, you start off with doing some really intense customer research or project research. So you're going out into the wild doing what I call a customer safari. And so you're actually watching how do people deal with this issue right now? What are the products they use and the services they use? What approach do they take? What are the barriers they hit? So you're really, really getting in-depth, real-world understanding of your customers. And then from there, you start unfolding that backwards into the process design stage. So given what we know about our customers, how should we be building our product or our service? And you're constantly validating it with what you know about customers and getting customers to give you feedback. So you're always, always, your design and structure of whatever you're doing starts there and works its way backwards. And so instead of designing even your internal processes from what makes most sense for you, you're saying, okay, in an ideal scenario, a customer would get our product and receive the invoice at the same time with a confirmation note to their email. That may or may not be what you would have thought of from your own internal process flow. But you start with their perspective and say, "Hmm, okay, that's the way we're going to do it." I think that's great, and you know, it's like, and I apologize for all the technical difficulties. I think they've eventually just kind of cut him off. But uh, maybe, uh-huh. maybe we'll hear from him. Maybe we won't. We'll uh, it, it'll be uh, it'll be good. You know, it, you know, it's an interesting perspective. You know, it, I think uh, one of uh, you know, kind of all profound knowledge comes from the you know comes from the outside, and I think it, you know it's just kind of always driving that. You know, we we call them. We like to put the word evolution in front of everything. So, you know, kind of evolutionary okay. leaders, people that are just always digging out there looking for, you know, kind of, you know, you know more information, what could make them better and, and that sort of thing. It's it's pretty neat stuff. It's mm-hmm. it's 
also amazing, as you mentioned earlier, you know, it's like whether it's a window shop or a remanufacturing business, or whatever, the people are able to do this in any industry, you know, in any yeah. location. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing when things, when things, uh, happen that way. Um, Let's go, let's go to quickly, you know, kind of customer service or I'm sorry, customer surveys. I mean, everybody says they do them and, and so forth. And, you know, a lot of times we send them out, they don't get filled out. I mean, how, how can we get better customer feedback? Well, and that's becoming a really big challenge because now so many people are sending out customer feedback surveys that people are kind of getting tired of them. So from the viewpoint of something you're sending out electronically, make it as quick and as simple as possible. Uh, you'll see now sometimes with customer support, they'll send you an email afterwards and it's got, you know, a smiley face, a sad face, and a neutral face, and you just click one. So it's a very basic level of information, but at least it starts. So then if somebody's clicked the unhappy face, you know you, you can go back to them and get more in-depth information. And again, most people who are unhappy, they want to be heard. They want to be listened to. And... So a lot of getting good feedback from customers involves proactively going out there and talking to them one-on-one. So instead of surveys, if you actually just take a, a random selection of your customers every week and call one or two of them and just say, you know, haven't touched base with you for a while. I'd really like to know how are things working out for you and are there things we could be doing better? What could we be doing better? What do you see on the horizon that might be issues for you? So doing some of that in-depth one-on-one research, very few people, especially if you've already got a bit of a relationship with them, they're not going to turn you down flat. They're not going to refuse to answer your questions if they're your customer. Again, it comes down to sincerity. Are you making it clear you really do want to learn from them and you do want their input? Or is it just a clearly a pro forma thing, in which case they'll get annoyed that you're wasting their time? All right, so I, I, we got two minutes, and I, you know, I, I saved my favorite question for last, we just because it's okay. you know we're a financial firm. And it's an, let's talk about the ROI of investing in these customers, customer satisfaction imp- or customer improvement movements. We all mm-hmm. like ROIs. So I, I'm glad you asked about the ROI because often people assume this stuff's going to be expensive, and we just can't justify spending the money on it. And what I find so exciting about this is. All the research that's been done has shown that if you take these steps of improving those three Ps, the people, process, and promise, your profits do go up. They go up partially because, as I said earlier, your processes will become more efficient, so you you aren't spending as much to actually get things built and done. They go up because your customers are happier, so you get more repeat business, and it's a lot easier to you know, and a lot cheaper to get a repeat sale than to have to keep going and getting new customers, which is another mistake that I see a lot of companies make is they get so focused on new customer acquisition and they reward their sales staff only on new customer acquisition. And then what happens, they get the customers in and they're not satisfying them. So they've got this leaky bucket all the time. And so it makes more sense from a purely financial perspective to focus on making sure the customers you've got are really satisfied because then they don't leave you and they recommend you to others. So that lowers your cost of getting new business. And likewise, if you've got the sort of happy, satisfied staff, you lower your turnover rates and you lower your absenteeism rates. 
And people often really underestimate how much turnover costs. It's not just a question of placing an ad for somebody new. It's all the time it takes to hire them, to train them, to get them up to speed. It adds up to an awful lot of money. So there's actually a very strong ROI case. And people really need to think about that because there's sort of this natural thing of saying, well, you know, it's not like calculating the the value of a piece of equipment and I've got this this many months till the payback time. It is a little softer than that. It's a little harder to predict. But I would say do some scenarios. Do a best case, worst case, and most likely case scenario. And you will see that invariably improving these things will improve your bottom line. Well, what we love about it is it not only improves the bottom line, but it's more you get to deal with, you know, keep people motivated and excited and much more fun. Well, Tim, we are out of time. I, I really appreciate all your time and effort. And I, I'm sorry about the technical techno, technical difficulties, and uh, we'll uh, have to bring you back sometime when we can uh, we, when we got it all figured out. But please check out PeopleShock.com. And uh, Tim and Frank, thank you so much for your time. And uh, as always, we'll end the show with passion for possibilities. Thank you. Talk to you next week. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in this week to The Second Stage. Please join Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson again next Monday afternoon at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And have a successful week.